Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We welcome all who are with us this morning for our pastor's Bible class. We welcome all who are here in our gymnasium. And for those of you who are here in the gymnasium, there are sheets containing the readings over on the side. We welcome all who are joining us in the St. Louis area on KFUO 858 AM and those who are joining us worldwide on KFUO.org. Today we're going to be doing what we have been doing in this class. We're going to look at the lessons, not for today, but the scripture lessons assigned for next week. So we'll be looking at the scripture lessons that we'll be hearing in church uh, next Sunday on June 30. And before we begin that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you this day thanking you for all your blessings the blessings that you shower down upon us each and every day, including those things that we even take for granted. We know that they come from your gracious hand. Especially do we thank you for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness and abundant eternal life we have through him. We thank you also for your word and for this opportunity to study it together. We pray your blessing upon us and your Holy Spirit guide us into truth and knowledge and your will for us as your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at the lessons for next Sunday, and we've got kind of a contrast here when we look at these. We're now past the festival half of the church year, and we're entering into that big, long, we call it the green season of the summer, where we're going to be looking a lot at the teachings and ministry of Jesus in the gospel lessons, and Old Testament lessons that kind of correspond with that. We've got an interesting sort of juxtaposition, or you might say combination here. In the Old Testament lesson, we have Elijah, the prophet, and we'll give some background on that, and he is kind of at his wit's end at this point. He is totally discouraged. And in the Gospel lesson, we've got Jesus being just the opposite, determined and setting his face to go to Jerusalem. So there's quite a contrast there between those two, and we'll talk about that as we get into the lessons today. First of all, the Old Testament lesson, and this is from 1 Kings chapter 19, 9b, notice we don't do 9a, 9b, uh, to, to verse 21. And again, this is the, what has happened here is, uh, in terms of some background, Remember Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. What is his probably one of his most famous acts of all time? The thing that he's remembered for in the Old Testament. Anybody know? May remember? Yeah, the, the prophets of Baal, right, on Mount Carmel. He defeats the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You can go to Mount Carmel today, and uh, you can see there's a, they've got a big statue of Elijah there with a sword in his hand. And you can look out over the, over the valley that is there uh, on all sides. It's not far from the sea, actually, from the Mediterranean Sea. And remember that he called, uh, he had a showdown, you might say, with the prophets of Baal, 450 of them at Mount Carmel. And remember, he called for two oxen to be taken, uh, one the prophets of Baal had and placed on wood. And all morning long, they called on Baal to come and consume that offering, and nothing happened. In fact, uh, toward, uh, toward the end of that, uh, uh, Elijah is actually pokes a little fun at them. You know, maybe, he is, maybe your God is sleeping. Uh, and uh, so on. then, remember, he, uh, he takes the uh, oxen, cuts it up, 
places it on 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes uh, of Israel, and upon the wood. And remember, to make it even harder for it to be consumed, he says, bring four jars of water. Pour, he dug a trench around it, remember. Pour these four jars of, of water on. These were not little jars. We think they were much bigger jars. Do that three times. So you got 12 jars of, of water on this. And remember, he calls upon God. And remember, not only the... The uh, sacrifice is not only consumed, but the water in the trench is even vaporized. And the people are struck with awe. They fall down and worship. And uh, he orders all the prophets of Baal to be killed. And remember, after that, uh, who, who is not happy with that? Jezebel. Yeah. Uh, she, of course, is a... a uh, idolater, and uh, she remembers, sends a message uh, to Elijah, may, may the gods do to me this same thing if I do not make you like one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, if I don't kill you by tomorrow, may the gods make me just like one of those prophets of Baal. So Elijah hears this, he gets the message through the messenger, and he takes off and flees. Now Mount Carmel is up in the north, and it's right on the, not far from the sea, he goes so far, he goes all the way down to Beersheba, which is in southern Judah. So not only does he leave the northern kingdom, he goes all the way through the southern kingdom of Judah, is there at Beersheba, and then goes out into the wilderness to uh, actually Mount Sinai, the equivalent of Mount Sinai. It's, it's called, uh, it's given a different name in the scriptures. Uh, let's see, I think it's Mount Horeb. Yeah, Mount Horeb is its other name. And he goes there. And he's in a cave, okay? And this is where we pick him up today. He's feared for his life. He, you will see, is going to be uh, just beside himself as he's in this cave. So let's start at verse 9 here, uh, of 1 Kings 19. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, came to Elijah. And he, that would be Yahweh or the Lord, said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, does God know what, he's, what Elijah's doing there? Yeah, yeah. We were talking today about how God is all-knowing. But so what's, what's sort of the meaning of, it, it's kind of, we don't know, the, of course, the, uh, the, the tone, but what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, it might be a way uh, of expressing this. You know, you've been up in the north, here you are fleeing, and, and all on your own here. He said, verse 10, uh, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous, you can also translate that zealous with a Z, zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Sabaoth, the God, God of great uh, heavenly hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away." Hmm. So how would you summarize his feeling at this point? You're going to summarize uh, Elijah's feeling at this point. Depressed, <laughs> at least, right? Discouraged, depressed. Uh, he says, I, even only I am left. Now, is that true? We're going to find it's not. God's going to let him know. There's uh, 6,999 others uh, that haven't bowed down to Baal. Uh, but he is feeling discouraged and depressed. Notice there, it's because of, it's not, 
It's not just that he's having a bad day, but he's, he's the, the idolatry and the wickedness of his people, of God's own people. Notice it's their, their actions. Um, Thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword. I only, even only I, am left. And, you know, you stop and think about it. Do you think that uh, Christian leaders today can get depressed at times, get discouraged at times? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I'll just speak as a pastor, the thing that, one thing that I know discourages all of us as pastors, if we see someone who was very active in the faith, very involved in word and sacrament, slowly drifting away. And then all of a sudden don't, don't see them anymore. That, that is, you know, makes a pastor's heart uh, really grieve. And unfortunately that does happen. We can turn our back on the Lord and, and absent ourselves from his word and his sacrament. On the other hand, uh, what makes a pastor's heart just uh, burst with joy is when we see the exact opposite thing happen. We see someone who has been away from the Lord, so to speak, and at least away from word and sacrament, coming back once again. Uh, at our 1045 service today uh, here in the gymnasium, we're going to have adult confirmations, and that's always a great day. Uh, or when we have a baptism, as we did earlier today in our 8 o'clock service. Those are the things that uh, bring a smile to a pastor's face. But unfortunately, we got here in the Old Testament lesson, there are those other times. Can you remember another giant in the Old Testament, of, another giant of faith, who in essence was saying the same thing to God? Anybody remember? Moses. Remember Moses? Complain to God, what have I done? And uh, to deserve this, this people that you've given, what have I done? You know, and take my life. He literally wants God to take his life right then and there. So uh, even Moses and Elijah, you know, the, and we, of course we see both of them later on the Mount of Transfiguration, but they both kind of have that in parallel. And they're both at Mount Sinai, right, when God is speaking to them. So there's kind of some parallels here that we can draw. All right, so he's really pitying himself. You might say, to use a modern expression, he's, got a, he's in a pity party here uh, for himself. I only, I am left. Look at how bad the people are. And this is all that they've done. Um, now, God says, notice God does not acknowledge, he never acknowledges all this with, with Elijah. He's not going to let him just uh, wallow around in pity. So verse 11, and he said, go out and stand on the mount, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, before the Lord. And behold... The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. So God passes by here, and the result is this great wind. And I don't know about you, the other day we had those strong winds that, that came, uh, straight-line winds that some places were uh, close to 50 miles an hour. Think of a wind so strong that it even breaks the rocks apart, as it says here. So this is a torrential wind, uh, just a, a very, very strong wind. And verse 12, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. 
And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? We're going to get a repetition of this, but before we do that, you notice anything here? Does God speak to Elijah in the midst of a great strong wind or even in the midst of an earthquake? How does he speak to him? In the still, small, quiet voice. It's even translated as a whisper here. Now, so where should we find God today? Where should we look for God to speak to us today? Go out and find a volcano somewhere? Go out and find a tornado? In his word again, right? He speaks to us in his word. word we are a word and sacrament people. And it's right here in his word where we find God's will revealed to us, just as it has always been. Same way with Moses, same way for us. And that's why we're here in the study of his word, so that we can have him speak to us, okay? So uh, then he speaks to him in this low whisper and asks again, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous or zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So it repeats the same thing back. And the Lord said to him, now notice here, God is not, God is not going to say, oh, you're right, Elijah. What a poor, great servant you've been. Uh, how, how terrible that this has happened to you. There's no acknowledgement by God here whatsoever. So uh, no, notice what God says, verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And that wilderness of Damascus is way up in the north again. So get back up there. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah, Abel you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So he's going to get a successor here. Uh, Elisha is going to be his successor, of course. And uh, Elisha is actually the one later on in 2 Kings uh, 8 and 9 who is going to anoint these two kings. Elijah will not do that. Elisha will actually end up doing that. And Jehu did reign in the north, uh, northern kingdom, 841 to 814 B.C. So, and it was, a, uh, for the most part, a, a just king. So uh, God is saying here, in effect, go back up there, get back to work, anoint these kings. In other words, we're not giving up here. And there is going to be a reform that's going to be coming. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be a long-lasting one. Okay. Now notice what he says here, and uh, verse 17, uh, And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. So again, the idolaters, the false believers, God is going to bring about an end for them through these two. And notice verse 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So again, even though Elijah is feeling like, I'm the only one left, you know, woe is me. No, that's not the case. There'll be 7,000, a remnant again, and we see this throughout the Old Testament, God working through a faithful remnant of people. Eventually, 
not only to keep his word, but to bring about salvation for all through his son. Okay? Then, um, going on, verse 19, so he departed from there, this would be Elijah, of course, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Now, what does that mean when, he, when Elijah comes by and puts his cloak on Elisha? What does that mean? Yeah, it's an indication that he is going to be his successor, right? And in other words, God has told Elijah this, and he is now, it's a, you might say it's a, a physical, uh, visible way of doing this, okay? Now, there's somewhat a comparison here. When, when in a pastor's life, when does that happen in a pastor's life? When he's ordained. What, what do we put, a cloak, a cloak on him? Stole, right, yeah. And that is, again, a physical, visible sign that a mantle is now being passed to him as well, right? He is, he is raised up uh, as one who would proclaim the word of God in the same, a similar way, we might say, to Elisha being raised up now uh, to be the successor, you might say, to take the place of Elijah, okay? Um, so uh, going on here, verse 20, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? That's kind of an idiom or kind of a saying there. In other words, uh, Elijah is saying to Elisha, go ahead and go back. Uh, what have I done to you? In other words, this isn't going to get in the way of you expressing uh, respect uh, for your parents. So go back again for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So kind of a dramatic way of saying goodbye to your former way of life, right? So he, in effect, sacrifices those oxen. They have a big meal, and he then leaves it all behind and goes and follows the Lord. Okay? So Elisha receives, uh, you might say, uh, his being a prophet from Elijah, and later on, we didn't have the end of this story, of course, but remember, uh, what does Elisha ask Elijah for? A double, double portion, right, of his spirit. And what's the, the condition? Elijah, if he sees Elijah go, he will receive it. And remember how Elijah exits this world in a fiery chariot, right? And, uh, and, and goes, so Elisha does see it and does receive that double portion. It's like the uh, portion of the eldest son, only we're talking spiritually speaking here at this point, okay? And uh, we mentioned Jezebel. Anybody remember how, how she uh, ends up? It's not good. <laughs> pushed out of a window, and uh, remember, and in fact, this is even prophesied, that, she's pushed, uh, that uh, the dogs uh, eat her flesh, and... Uh, the only thing they find left is her skull, and was her skull, and something, I should have looked this up, and uh, she's nowhere to be found after that. 
So uh, she's not uh, one of the great uh, women of the Old Testament. You don't, you don't find many uh, uh, girls named Jezebel today uh, in our world. So that's how that whole story ends up. So we've got Elijah in the Old Testament lesson who is uh, depressed. He's, he's at his end because things are going so badly. And in effect, he's just hiding out, biding his days. God kind of comes, gives him a kick in the pants and says, get back up there. Uh, anoint these two guys, and Elisha is going to be your successor, and my work is going to continue. Okay? So, that's the Old Testament lesson. Now, let's skip for a moment the Galatians, and I want to see the contrast here with the Gospel lesson, which is uh, Jesus now setting his face to go to Jerusalem. Okay? So, let's look at Luke chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 51 through 62 here. And verse 51 is what we would call the hinge verse in the Gospel of Luke, okay? Before this, Jesus has spoken on more than one occasion. Uh, even in, uh, it's in 9 uh, verse 22, for example. He has told his disciples that the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests, scribes, and elders, be crucified, and raised on the third day. And a little bit later in Luke chapter 9, we've got the transfiguration has just happened. And who's up there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. And what are they? They're, they're talking with him. And what does Luke say they're talking about? His departure or his exodus, Christ's own exodus. And in other words, talking about his What's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem, be handed over, killed, raised on the third day, and eventually ascend? So it's not like this has been a, a mystery, uh, although the disciples didn't seem to get it, but it's not, the reader of Luke knows what is coming. And now, after that, with that as context, verse 51, when the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus to be taken up, we think, refers not only to his crucifixion, but also his resurrection, his ascension. In other words, everything that was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. So when the days drew near for him, he noticed there the, the wording, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's just like you kind of stick your chin out with determination to go someplace. Uh, I think one of the translations, I can't remember which one has, is set his face like flint uh, to go to Jerusalem. So it's a, it's a determination, uh, a bold determination to go to Jerusalem, knowing full well what is going to happen and what is going to become of him when he goes there. So you see here exact opposite of what we've got with Elijah, who is you know, filled with all kinds of pity, We've got Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem. And right after this now, we have material in Luke that is not in the other Gospels, for the most part. It's called the travel narrative. And it's from verse 51 on that we've got a lot of material that is unique to Luke. And let's remember, was Luke one of the disciples? Was he one of the apostles? No. In fact, at the beginning of Luke, it talks, he talks about how he researched all of these things. And so we get this material, and we're beholden to Luke for this material. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it. 
uh, travel narrative. We've got a lot of parables here and so on. A lot of great stuff that will be coming up in the weeks to come. Okay, but it's all in Luke. Now, so he's going to Jerusalem and, uh, verse 52, and he sent messengers ahead of him who, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. So these messengers, he sends out ahead of them, and that word for sent, if I say it in Greek, you'll understand, I think, apostello, what does that sound like? Apostles, right? They're sent out. He sends these guys out with authority from himself, and they're to go and make ready. Now, we think it was more than just go and, you know, uh, get a room for him or uh, get bedding or food or something like that but actually preaching also, uh, probably of repentance. Uh, and those messengers, the, the, i do a bunch of Greek here with you, but the, uh, the word for messenger is angelos, where we get angel from, right? So these guys go out ahead of him, and they are to be his messengers sent out with his authority. Now they're going to a Samaritan village. Now, were the Samaritans and Jews, were they uh, uh, best of buddies at this time? No, great contention between the two. And in fact, when you were a Jew tra uh, tr uh, doing the route that Jesus is doing here, going down to Jerusalem, many of them went around Samaria. They went to the east of the Jordan River and went down that way instead of going through Samaria. Uh, I was trying to think of any examples we have of that in our country, but uh, they, they so disliked one another that the Jews many times would avoid the region entirely and travel a different route, okay? Uh, the Samaritans being those who were left behind uh, after the Assyrians came and took the north captive, many of them intermarried. Uh, a lot of uh, false religion was there at that time previously, idolatry. And there was a big dispute over where you should worship, okay? Uh, the Jews, of course, would have Jerusalem and Judah. Anybody know where the, where the Samaritans said uh, you should worship? Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. Remember that discussion Jesus has with the woman at the well? You know, She tries to pull him into that, and he's not having any of it. So they would say Mount Gerizim. In fact, their, their version of the Pentateuch even said, instead of Jerusalem, Gerizim. They, they changed it even to say that, okay? So this is, there's this bad blood between them, all right? And so notice here, verse uh, 53, but the people did not receive him, notice the reason here, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So when they heard he was going to Jerusalem, they wanted nothing to do with him, okay? And, uh, you know, there they've got the Messiah right in front of them, and they dismiss him just out of hand because he's going to Jerusalem, not to Gerizim, or not following their traditions, right? Now, this was almost comical next, although it's not. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> so James and John... These uh, sons of Zebedee, what's their solution here? Uh, they're not going to receive Jesus, so, Lord, should we, you want us to call down some fire on them and, and consume them? Now, uh, James and John, it's in, it's in uh, the Gospel of Mark. Does anybody know the nickname for James and John? Sons of 
thunder, sons of thunder. And it's in Mark, I think, chapter 3 that they're called that. Uh, so these two guys, the sons of Zebedee, uh, want to bring about a judgment or a retribution on these Samaritans, uh, calling down fire uh, from on high, maybe. What do you think a reference to? Yeah, prophets of Baal, perhaps. You know, they're thinking. Uh, does it have any connection with what Elijah did on Mount Carmel? We don't know. Uh, maybe they just, just wanted to destroy them anyway, okay? Um, so Jesus turns around and rebukes them. Jesus is not going to have any of that. Uh, so how do we respond when people, don't, uh, when people don't respond in faith to Jesus? What is a God-pleasing response? Are we to pray that God would bring down fire and brimstone upon them? No. Obviously, Jesus rebukes them here. He is not going to have any of that. And we pray that you know, for people that they might repent and turn to the truth and be saved. Because we know God desires that no one should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. But it's almost kind of comical there because, uh, you know, they, they're, in fact, when you think about it, they're kind of overconfident here, aren't they, of their own abilities. Uh, coming up in the next chapter, Jesus is going to send out the 72 and send them out with great, uh, great authority. And, but these guys are all ready to go right now. Uh, so Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, we're going to have three, coming up in these next verses, we're going to have three um, people who are going to either be called or you might say would-be disciples, and Jesus is going to be pretty stern here with what we might call the cost of being a disciple. And it's sometimes a little hard to read this. So let's, let's take a look at this. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, now again, this is on the way to Jerusalem, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So this guy, you know, it sounds great, doesn't it? I will follow you wherever you go. And so Jesus doesn't directly respond to him, but in a sense, what is Jesus saying here in verse 58? That is it going to be easy to follow him? No. That even he, the Son of Man, which, by the way, that is his favorite way of referring to himself. He does it uh, 80 or so times in the Scriptures. And it has, of course, messianic implications. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words... If you're thinking this is going to be all about glory and power, the Son of Man is no, no place even to lay his own head. Okay? So, uh, modern-day application. Uh, should guys go into the pastoral ministry for all the power and pomp and authority they're going to have? No. No. And so, uh, you know, I'll follow you wherever you go. You remember somebody else who said that, one of the disciples? Thomas, remember, let us go on to Jerusalem and die with him there, right? He's ready to go. And so Jesus, in effect, says, again, uh, even he has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this is kind of, next one is a little hard, again. To another, he said, follow me. So Jesus said this to someone, but he, the, the man said, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
little hard to hear that, isn't it? Now, contrast that in our Old Testament lesson. What did Elisha want to do? Go back and kiss his father goodbye. And did Elijah say, leave the dead to bury their dead and come after me? No. He allowed him to go back. There's a couple of ways here. Uh, There's one that I read that I I really don't. We try to explain this, and some authors are, are wanting to go so far and say, that maybe the guy's father wasn't even dead yet. And, and the guy is saying, you know, after my father dies, I'll come and follow you. Well, that might be the case. But actually, uh, most scholars feel this is just the urgency of what is about to happen. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. The days are drawing near for him to be taken up. There's no time to, uh, to sit around and do other things. In other words, come after me now. The train is leaving the station. You know, we're going to Jerusalem. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. But again, I I will be first to admit that's a kind of hard thing for us to hear. Okay, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Come after me and proclaim the kingdom of God. Then this last one, the third one here. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Doesn't this sound again like Elisha in the Old Testament? Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, there's a, you get a picture here. You literally, in Old Testament or Bible times, had your hand on a plow, and that plow was being drawn by oxen or animals, beasts of burden. Your other hand is with a prod, prodding the animal forward, Does it make sense for you to turn around and try to talk to somebody in the back? It takes concentration. It takes, you know, you've got to keep your wits about you as you're doing this because you're going across rough ground. And so everybody knew you didn't put your hand to the plow and turn around and be having a conversation back here, right? It's like driving the car today and you're turning around looking at, you know, talking to people in the back seat, uh, which I hope you don't do. Virgil? Yeah, you make a crooked row. That's exactly right. And so, but... Here, now, Jesus obviously is not giving lessons in farming here, okay? So what is his point? Don't be, again, don't be looking back. You go ahead with me, okay? So he didn't give a direct answer here, but indirectly he's saying, the call of the kingdom of God is now. Go forward. You're not going back, okay? And so, again, these are maybe hard for us to hear because we're thinking, gee, why couldn't he just go and say goodbye, or why couldn't this guy go and bury his father? And again, we think it's, again, the urgency of it all. It is all unfolding now. And there's that urgent call to come and follow him, okay? So, I mean, there are some parallel or some uh, opposites here we've got. We've got the determination of Jesus in the gospel lesson to go to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to get in his way. Nothing should deter anyone from coming after him. And in the Old Testament, we've got a defeated, uh, pitiable Elijah cowering in a cave. Okay, so there's the there's the contrast between the two. And uh, I guess if you include the plow reference, we got oxen in both probably too. But that's not <laughs> I don't think that's the intended uh, connection. All right, let me stop here for a moment. Any comments or questions either on the Old Testament or on the Gospel before we get to the Epistle? Comments or questions? All right, let's take a look then at uh, Galatians chapter 5, and this is actually what I'll be uh, preaching on next week. 
and it is quite a verse. In Galatians, remember what's going on here in Galatians. Paul uh, is battling a group of false teachers who are saying it's not only faith in Jesus Christ that saves, but it's faith and keeping the law. Good works, keeping the law, being like a Jew, living by the law, okay? And these false teachers had, had gotten in and apparently were having some traction uh, with the Christians in Galatia. And, uh, you know, they even, they even attacked Paul's own authority and his own credibility. They were saying, oh, Paul is just trying to make it too easy for you by saying you don't have to keep the law. He's trying to please people here uh, and, and make it easier to be saved. And so they were discrediting Paul, which is not the main thing Paul's concerned about. The main thing he's concerned about is they're destroying the pure gospel. Remember, earlier on, Paul repeats uh, two times, states, if an, even an angel should come and preach to you uh, a, a different gospel, not that there is any other gospel, let him be cursed or anathema. Right. So that's the main concern that we've got going on here in Galatia that there are false teachers who are trying to take away the pure gospel and say it's not only faith in Christ, but it's faith and keeping the law, being a good Jew. Now, in chapter 5, Paul now starts talking with them about this freedom that we have, freedom in the gospel. Now, let me ask you this. If we say we have freedom, he starts off in verse 1 there, notice, for freedom... Christ has set us free. What has Christ set us free from? <laughs> to end with a participle. Where has he, what is, or I, uh, preposition, where, where has he set us free from? Sin? Death? The law? Yes, all of the above. We are free from all of them. Free from sin's power to condemn us, Right? Uh, totally free. It's not that we don't sin any longer, but we are set free from its grip on us. The law, with its ability to condemn us, has been taken away in terms of us having to try to maintain the law and keep the law in order to be saved. Uh, and death itself, the result of sin, the penalty for sin, has been completely taken away or defeated, I should say, by Christ. We still experience physical death, but not the spiritual death, and we have the resurrection of all flesh yet to come. Now let me ask you this question. We said we've been freed from the law. Does the law still have a role to play in our life as Christians? If we say we've been free from the law, does that mean, well, I guess we don't have to worry about the law anymore at all. I don't have to pay any attention to it. No, that's not it. Uh, we have what we call, remember there are the three uses of the law? Take you back to your confirmation days for a moment. There's the curb, remember? It keeps society from jumping off the rails and, and going off. We, we, our, our laws in society are based upon God's moral law. It's wrong to kill, wrong to steal, and so on. Then there is the main working of the law as a mirror, right? Shows us our sin, right? You wake up in the morning, uh, and get in front of the mirror, there you are, just as you are, right? And that's what the law, God's law does. It shows us just as we are. But then remember, there's that third use of the law. We don't maybe talk about that as much as we should. And that is, it is what? It is a guide for us 
as God's people. Now that I have been freed and my sins are forgiven, and I want to find out, well, how do I live a life that's pleasing in God's sight? Where do I go? I go back to his word and his law, and I read there what is pleasing in the sight of God. And now I want to do that, not so that I can try and save myself, but because I've already been saved. I've already been given this wonderful gift from God. And my life is now turned around toward him instead of away from him. Okay? And so that law still has a role to play in our lives as Christians. And I'll tell you, you read Paul's epistles, take a look at how much of what he says is actually that third use of the law. Let me give you one example of this. So early Christians, remember, these are converts to the Christian faith. One big question is, what is our relationship with the government supposed to be? And in that time, it was which government? The Roman government. So are we as Christians now, are, are we supposed to defy the government? Are we supposed to live in opposition to the government? Never pay taxes to the government? And what does Paul say in Romans 13? Obey the government. It's established by God. It's the one that has the, the power to punish evil in this world. So there again, see, we look at God's law and find there what is pleasing for us as his people. And we now want to live that way again, not to try and save ourselves, but because we already have been saved, okay? So that's what we've been, uh, he says there, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That stand firm, he almost sounds like a military leader, right? Stand at attention, stand firm. And what do you think Paul means by do not submit again to a yoke? Remember, a yoke would be what goes around the, the animal, a yoke of slavery. What would be the yoke of slavery that Paul doesn't want them to slip back into again? The law. Yeah, trying to be saved by the law. Don't slip back into that yoke of slavery. You've been set free. You're no longer a slave to those things. Don't slip back into it again. Is it easy for us to slip back into that? You betcha. I think especially in America where we have a strong work ethic, uh, at least for the most part, I think, uh, isn't it the case that we, we would love to say that I contributed even a little bit to this, right? Uh, or, or at least I can look at my life and maybe I'm a little more deserving of this than other people are. That's not grace any longer, is it? When we go down that road, we are slowly submitting once again to that slavery that once had us. So the best thing we can do is just realize there's no way that I could do it. There's no way I am deserving. It's all a gift from God, okay? So Paul, you can almost hear Paul pleading with them here. You know, hold on to this. You're, you've been set free. Don't slide back into that yoke of slavery again, okay? Now, going on, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to the, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. All right, so you're free now from sin, you're free from death, you're free from 
everything that ensnared us before. What do you think Paul means there? Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, when Paul uses the word flesh here, he's not referring to the physical, you know, skin and bones and uh, uh, blood vessels and so on. Flesh is, uh, as we'll see coming up here, is uh, what we might call a sin and evil that is opposed to the work of the Spirit. These two Paul is going to set up in contrast to one another. So when Paul says, you've been set free, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for the sin or the evil in your life, he's saying, in effect, something, we could maybe paraphrase this, is something like, just because all your sins are forgiven now, don't think that you, you're supposed to now go out and sin all you want because your sins are forgiven. Remember how Paul starts Romans chapter 6? Remember how he starts that? Uh, since we've received this grace, should we sin all the more? Right? And in one hand, some people might say, hey, yeah, that sounds pretty good. You know, God will have more opportunity to forgive me. Uh, more and more, day after day after day, I'll go out and sin all I want and uh, give God more chances to forgive me. Paul says, no, by no means. That's faulty logic. And that's not the way the Christian would think anyway. Truly, a Christian would think that way. So here's what he's saying. Even though, again, you and Galatia have been set free, that doesn't mean you go out now because you're free and serve the flesh, serve the evil, sinful desires uh, and, and, uh, that are opposed to the Spirit. But who do we serve? Through love, what? Serve one another. So now that I have been set free, I don't just sit around and, uh, and, and glory in my forgiveness and my salvation. I look around now and see who it, who it is that I can serve. Okay? Uh, Luther, I should have wrote this down. It, it, the quote from Luther goes something like this, that the, the Christian is at the same time Lord of all, and at the same time, servant of all. And that word for servant is a word that means a slave to all. We voluntarily now, in love, place ourselves in service to one another. Uh, Luther also said, God, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. And so now we've been totally set free, and we look around, what is our freedom supposed to do now? What are we supposed to do with this freedom? Serve one another. Again, voluntarily placing ourselves. Who, who is the prime example of this? Jesus, right? He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Okay? So... In effect, that's what uh, Paul is calling the Galatians to do there. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, and here we got Leviticus 19.18 quoted here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, actually, that's what, what table of the law is being fulfilled with that, with that verse, love your neighbor as yourself. We got the two tables of the law. Remember, first table is commandments one through... Three, dealing with our relationship with God. We've got the second table of the law, the rest of the commandments, four through ten, dealing with our relationship with others, our neighbor, right? And so that second table is fulfilled. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus uh, quotes this same uh, thing. 
And uh, when we truly love our neighbor, love does no harm to our neighbor, right? And so, in effect, if we could perfectly love our neighbor as ourselves, as much as we love ourselves, we would not certainly kill or steal or bear false witness or covet and so on. Uh, we just wouldn't do those things, right? And, and so that summarizes the whole, the whole law toward our neighbor. Uh, and then going on, verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So you get the impression that what might have been going on here a little bit in Galatia, there was a lot of infighting going on, not only between these false teachers and the teachers of the truth, but maybe some others as well. Now comes a, a spot here uh, that a lot of people, I know for a lot of people, one of the favorite uh, sections that it ends with here. Uh, but I say, we're going we're to have a contrast here between the spirit and the flesh. But I say, verse 16, walk by the spirit, or I would say keep on walking by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, or you won't bring to completion the desires of the flesh. Okay, If you're walking in the spirit... You won't do that, okay? Uh, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. You see that, that opposition that's there? There's the old sinful desires of the flesh that unfortunately are still all around us, and we still carry around with us, and then there's the spirit, which is set in direct opposition for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, unfortunately, uh, can, we, can we perfectly live in the Spirit every moment of every day? No, unfortunately not. And in fact, in Romans 7, Paul even admits this about himself. Remember when he says, the, the good things that I want to do, that's not what I end up doing. Instead, it's the evil that I do not want to do. That's what I end up doing. You know, there's like a war going on inside. And so we do not say we're going to reach some state of perfection here on this earth where we're not going to sin anymore. We're never going to have an evil thought anymore. We're never going to, you know, do something that, that is displeasing in the sight of God. Unfortunately, we still do. And there is this, this war that goes on between the spirit and the flesh with its desires. Okay? Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That under is a key word there. Being under the law means you are under its punishment. You are under its curse. We would say as Christians, we are not under the law in that sense. We are in the law in that what we talked about before, want to do it now so that we are... Uh, do that which is pleasing in God's sight, but we are not under the law, under its curse, trying to, uh, in some vain way, uh, fulfill it. Now, verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Quite a laundry list there, right? And uh, so Paul makes it clear that in case I forgot one, things like these. <laughs> Just in case you're thinking of one that I didn't mention. All right? But notice, so that's, that's the one side. That's the works of the flesh. Now notice what he does. Uh, 
Well, first of all, I, I warned you that before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, the law goes right along with all of these good things. There's no law against these things, right? Uh, so if you're trying to keep the law, those things go right along. 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That happened the moment we believe, crucified the flesh. You know, I was reading, uh, we don't realize this, but in the ancient world, they would never speak um, real in a cavalier way about crucifying something because crucifixion was a brutal, heinous kind of death. And Paul does this in several places, talks about crucifying the flesh. And that would sound uh, striking to someone in the ancient world. But crucifying its desires. And then verse 25, you can almost see a repeat of verse 16. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, so keep walking in it. Keep on walking in it. And it's kind of like, uh, were any of you in marching band in high school? I was. And uh, we used to, you know, you're marching along, and what do you do? It, maybe this was just our band, I don't know. But uh, the director would yell out, guide right. So you're marching forward, and what are you supposed to do? Look to the right, so that what? You're, if, you're, if you're three steps in front of your line, what are you supposed to do? Slow down, right? Or if you're three steps behind, get moving. You probably noticed if you were three steps behind. But the idea is the same thing. Keep, keep in step, keep in, you know, in cadence with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. Do you have a... What? Okay. Same thing. Okay. And so keep in line with the Spirit. Okay? Keep walking, keep in step with the Spirit. And that's a good way of thinking of the Christian life. Uh, we won't go into it now. We're almost out of time. But it's interesting that... The works of the flesh, if you, if you group them, uh, in verses 19 to 21, the first, let's see, one, two, three of them deal with sexual impurity, and that is the perversion of the first gift of the, uh, gifts of the Spirit, which are uh, love and joy. Then the second two are against God, idolatry, uh, and they are a, a perversion of the gifts of the Spirit, faithfulness uh, as well. And then you've got social relationships with, uh, let's see, the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, everything from enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Uh, perversions of, again, the fruit of the Spirit. And then finally, you've got sins of excess. Uh, with drunkenness or orgies or drunkenness and carousing. And it's interesting the way Paul sets these up in Galatians here, that he's got the, the fruit of the Spirit at the end. You want to end on the good news. But the things that come before that, they, each one of them are a perversion of one or more of the gifts of the Spirit. So again, that's the way the flesh and the Spirit are working against one another in this world. Fortunately, we just had Pentecost, just celebrated Pentecost. Fortunately, we have the gift of the Spirit that God gives us, and that's, remember, He not only calls us to faith,
but keeps us in this faith as well. Without that gift of the Spirit, uh, boy, uh, no, we, we would be hopeless, helpless. Okay? All right. Thank you very much. Let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.